0: Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. And we extend our summer hiatus here with a reprise of an episode we really liked. It's episode 95, my interview with Professor Jonathan Momolo. Uh, Professor Momolo's work is on the militarization of police. Uh, Those of you who heard it, remember uh, how incisive and interesting Professor Momolo is. And if you haven't, you're in for a real treat. Why militarizing the police is a bad idea. Episode 95 with Jonathan Momolo. Here it is. Since the creation of the first SWAT teams in the 1960s, militarized police units have multiplied. SWAT teams can rescue hostages or handle emergencies. But are they used that way? Do they increase public safety? And what's the impact on the public and on officers? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer of our dysfunctional criminal justice system. And still so, so glad for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Turn the clock back to the 1960s in Los Angeles. It was a time of civil unrest, rioting in cities, growing crime. To meet this challenge, the Los Angeles Police Department created something new. It was called a Special Weapons and Tactics Unit, usually known by its acronym, SWAT. These teams of highly trained officers issued special military-type gear would deploy for special situations, hostage-taking, barricaded bad guys who wouldn't give up, real emergencies calling for a higher degree of firepower and sophistication. It's easy to see how sometimes this could be necessary and could save lives. Rescue the hostages, take down those heavily armed groups. But somewhere along the way, something changed. Every police department of any size wanted a SWAT unit because, well, who could tell when any city, any town for that matter, might have that type of emergency. So by the 1990s and the year 2000, SWAT teams seem to have popped up everywhere in the United States. Take a listen here to John Fassman, The Economist magazine's Atlantic correspondent. He explains the origins of SWAT teams in the U.S., how common they are, and why They've become so pervasive. Check it out. The first SWAT
1: team was created in Los Angeles in the late 1960s to respond to violent civil unrest. And the idea was that police needed a unit that could respond to situations, hostage situations, people barricaded in buildings, that could respond with overwhelming force. The problem is that you've gone from having a few hundred raids a year in the 1970s to about 100 a day. Let's first establish they have not spread in response to a rise in crime. They have ballooned between 1980 and 2007, and during that time, violent crime has fallen in the United States. The reason they seem to have risen is simply because there are more SWAT teams now than there were. Now a majority not only of big cities have SWAT teams, but a majority of towns with populations under 50,000 have their own SWAT teams or are part of a sort of joint municipal SWAT force that exists in their area and can be called out.
0: With that many SWAT teams at the ready by the early 2000s, two other factors pushed up the numbers again. The river of federal money that flowed to local law enforcement after September 11, 2001 for homeland security purposes could be used to purchase pieces of military equipment. And at the same time, the Department of Defense began to make a large amount of outdated or unneeded military gear available for purchase at rock bottom prices to police departments through the so-called 1033 program. These twin initiatives bulked up SWAT and the general militarization of police departments, with a huge number of not just large, but also small departments getting their own armored personnel carriers, MRAPs, and other pieces of military gear, as well as high-powered firearms. For police departments, it was simply better safe than sorry. Rather have the stuff and not need it than need it, And not have it. And the stuff was dirt cheap or even purchased with federal dollars. And besides, having the best weapons and officers trained for military style operations would have a crime suppression effect. At least that was the thought. Then, in 2014, came the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri and the protests that followed. Attempting to put down these demonstrations, the local authorities in St. Louis County deployed lots of local military-grade gear, SWAT teams, and the like, with the idea of delivering the kind of shock and awe effect that would intimidate people and put a halt to the unrest. I think we all remember how that worked out. Not good at all. The demonstrations simply got worse. A lot worse, putting armored vehicles on small city streets with police atop them in military uniforms pointing automatic weapons on tripods at civilian demonstrators with their hands in the air. That's an image I won't forget anytime soon, and I think I'm not alone. It prompted a lot of scrutiny of the idea of putting civilian police in military gear and vehicles with military weapons and researchers started asking questions. Was this proliferation of militarization a good idea? Did it, in fact, bring crime down in general, even if it did not stop the Ferguson marches? Who bore the brunt of the use of these increasingly common SWAT deployments? Did it help police objectives? Our guest today is one of those researchers who looked at this closely and his empirical Fact-based research will help us answer those questions. Jonathan Momolo is Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Affairs at Princeton University. His research focuses on the intersection between bureaucratic politics and political behavior, with a particular focus on law enforcement agencies. His work has examined not just efforts at police reform, but also how the tactics police use influence the public perception of police and of a social world. Before earning his PhD at Stanford University, Professor Momolo worked as a journalist at the Washington Post. He covered crime and politics, perfect preparation for what he does now at Princeton. He's here to discuss his new work titled Militarization Fails to Enhance Police Safety or Reduce Crime but May Harm Police Reputation. It was published in 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We'll put up a link to the article on our website. Professor Jonathan Mamolo, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, good. Let's take that first word in your title. You use the word militarization, talking about police departments. How do you define militarization in this context?
2: So militarization uh, is sort of a catch-all term to describe a combination of equipment and tactics and culture um, that are adopted by law enforcement agencies and so uh, we're really describing uh, a range of, of scenarios when we use that term, um, anywhere from an agency that decides to uh acquire a piece of military equipment, uh, which thousands of agencies have done to various federal programs, to agencies that rely heavily on um, so-called militarized units, like uh, the ones I focus on in my study, which are uh, SWAT teams. And SWAT stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. And unlike traditional police units, these are uh, elite teams of officers that receive special training. Uh, The teams are modeled after special forces units in the military. Interesting. I did not
0: know that. Modeled after special forces.
2: Yeah, these are sort of explicitly modeled after uh, elite military units. And... um they receive additional training. Um, they use military-style equipment and armor and vehicles. And their mission—the uh, word "tactical" there in the acronym Special Weapons and Tactics—basically refers to uh, a focus on the use of force and uh, the use of surprise. So these are not investigative units like a lot of other uh-huh. uh, police police units. These are these are units that basically um, were conceived to handle violent emergencies. Um, and uh, to enter buildings and homes uh, by surprise to confront suspects.
0: Are, are SWAT teams the most common form of police militarization that you know about?
2: Yeah, uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, I, there's definitely probably uh, if you if you count um, simply receiving. Uh, some piece of military equipment as uh, having some level of militarization Uh in your department. That's probably a more widespread phenomenon, but SWAT teams are extremely common. So as of 2008, um, a a federal census of law enforcement agencies showed by my calculations that about 93% of Americans live in a county that has at least one SWAT team.
0: Let's say that again. 93% of the people in the United States live in a county with at least one SWAT team, maybe more. Right. Okay, so that that covers a lot of people. And SWAT teams had also been studied before. Isn't that right?
2: Yes. Um, beginning in the 1990s, criminologists like uh, Peter Kraska, for example, started to take note of this uh, trend of, of, of sort of the militarization of law enforcement and he did a lot of pioneering work in this area sort of describing the phenomenon and uh, cataloging its trend over time so, like surveying large agencies to see uh, who was forming these types of paramilitary units and how often they were using them and things like that. Um, what hasn't really been studied until very recently uh, are the, the consequences of the use of these
0: uh, tactics and this equipment. The consequences of having them and and using them. So, you were able to get a handle on some of these things by coming across knowing that there was a data set out there from the state of maryland on swat teams talk to us about that
2: yeah so it wasn't something i I found right away uh this is a project i started shortly after uh protests in ferguson missouri um in which national news news networks broadcast images of of a really heavily armed police response oh i remember those yeah yes and it sort of sort of sparked this national conversation around uh, militarization and um If you kind of take stock of the debate that was going on, it was sort of framed as a trade-off between liberty and security. So law enforcement agencies claimed uh, that they needed these uh, pieces of equipment um, and and this approach to law enforcement to keep officers safe and to deter violent crime. Critics uh, on the left uh, alleged that these tactics were targeted at communities of color and eroded trust. So my interest was in sort of adjudicating these claims and I set out to find data uh, on the activities of SWAT teams, and I started by uh, sending out hundreds of freedom of freedom of information act requests to to local agencies for basically logs of their sWAT deployments
0: that um, is the back. that is the work of a journalist right there
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah that 's definitely uh, an approach that I think occurred to me because of my background in, in newspaper reporting um, I had some familiarity with open records laws um, but it 's a pretty complicated task there 's over 15,000 state and local police agencies in the country. Um, Each state has a different open records law, so there's different requirements about what they're supposed to keep, how long they're supposed to keep it, and what they have to divulge. Um, And I got back a really wide array of data in terms of quality. Some of it was um, really meticulous, and some of it was totally unusable, and then a lot of places sent me nothing. Eventually, um, through uh, just sort of reading news about Um, SWAT teams and and, and, uh, reading a lot of of articles about different, like, uh, incidents that were controversial that involved SWAT teams, Um, I located a case in Maryland that I had actually been familiar with from my time at the Washington Post because it was still making headlines then, Um, and this was basically a botched raid by a SWAT team in Maryland uh, of a a local mayor's house, a suburban mayor. and a SWAT team raided his home on a false suspicion that he was involved in some sort of drug trafficking scheme. He was not. Um, the team killed his two dogs, shot and killed his two dogs, and interrogated him and his wife. And they were they were completely innocent. So this sparked uh, sort of – actually made national headlines at the time.
0: I can and, imagine. Uh, if you want to botch a raid, don't go to the mayor's house.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the state legislature in Maryland – um, was under a lot of political pressure to do something about this, and they said, "Okay, well, we need to at least know what these SWAT teams are doing. Um, you know, is this a common thing, and are we only hearing about this because of who who it happened to?" And they realized they were kind of in the dark, so they they passed a a law that's a pretty rare law. I know of only other one state that that recently passed a similar law, and it required um, every agency in the state. Uh, to catalog their SWAT deployments in a uniform manner and to record a whole bunch of details about each deployment and to send all that data to the state government.
0: Wow. So So you really uh, had quite a deep pool of data for one state.
2: Yeah. So unfortunately, the law was written in a way that it sunset after five years, Um, So there's only five years of data, but it does contain detailed records on over 8,000 SWAT deployments. And it allows for um, a whole uh, raft of tests of a lot of arguments that have been made about SWAT teams um, that have really mostly relied on sort
0: of anecdotal evidence. Right. So now we have some data. So let's start with what we can see right off the top. How are, I should say, in this data set, How did you find that SWAT teams were used in Maryland? What were they used for?
2: Yeah, so this is an interesting point. So just from the simple uh, descriptive tabulations in the data, um, you can see that those SWAT teams were conceived to handle violent emergencies like active shooter scenarios uh, or hostage situations. Um, They are overwhelmingly in, in, in these data used for the service of search warrants. Um, So, 91% uh, of the 8,000-some deployments were to serve search warrants. Now, these are not emergency situations. They're often pre-scheduled events, um, and I would say they're on the more routine end of police work when compared to some of the emergencies I just mentioned.
0: Absolutely. Um, and when you say pre-scheduled, they don't check in with the defendant. They they know they're going out to do this. They're not called out for an emergency, the officers. They're going out there on a schedule to serve that warrant. It's not something that has just come up.
2: Yeah, that is. Off, it's often the case, yes. Like there may be some situations where there's a rush to get a warrant because of something they just learned, but often these uh, are things that are planned in advance and they know tonight we're going out with a SWAT team to serve this warrant. And we know from a lot of journalistic work uh, and, and some of the early academic work I've I mentioned before um, that these are basically, for the most part, raids of people's homes in the search for illegal drugs. And uh, this approach to using SWAT teams became... Um, widespread starting in the 1980s or so with a, a Reagan under the Reagan administration. Um, and so I think the thinking on the part of, of local law enforcement is we're going into a home you know potentially a drug dealer's home. Uh, there may be a gun. Um, there's actually more guns in the United States than there are people now. Mm -hmm. Um, So and this is something that's always on the mind of law enforcement, um, always being cautious that who they're dealing with might have a gun. And so I think the thinking is we might as well send this heavily armed unit uh, and the officers will be uh, better protected.
0: Right. And Um, so they're going in into these uh, uh, homes to find illegal drugs pursuant to a warrant. And that can include the use of some of these SWAT tools, things like battering rams, grenades, uh, not not battle grenades, but so-called flashbangs. Flash yes. Yes. And all that gets done in these drug raids?
2: Yeah, these are incredibly disruptive events. Um, property uh, is taken in around 84% of the cases in the data. Um Forcible entry is used close to 70% of the time. So this really is, um, you know, people's homes having the doors kicked in uh, and raided. Um, one sort of uh, feature of the data that clashes with sort of popular accounts of controversial SWAT raids is that violence and injuries and deaths are actually quite rare. So shops are only fired around 1% of the time, for example. Um, people and animals are killed uh, less than 1% of the time. Um, so... This is really more about uh, uh, disruption, property damage, um, and sort of like heavy-handed tactics to perform uh, sort of a routine police task.
0: And so how often is it then that we get a SWAT team used for what I think they were conceived for, which was this sort of barricade thing? You know, the, know, the, the, the person barricaded in a home or taken a hostage or something like that. How often are they used for that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, so I find that the barricade scenarios, which is a category in the data, only clock in at around 5% of cases. So um, though it remains uh, sort of the Hollywood depiction of SWAT teams that they're called in to handle some sort of hostage uh, scenario, um, that's very rarely uh, what they do. It's about 4.9% of cases.
0: That is a very eye-opening thing. I think a lot of people will be surprised by your finding. So, the big takeaway to start with, I guess, is that these are usually used in non-emergency situations, 9 out of 10 times. So, where do SWAT deployments take place? I mean, cuz I've heard claims for years that this is a tactic that is primarily used in neighborhoods in which the population is overwhelmingly people of color. Does that prove out in your data?
2: Yeah, it actually does. So one of the features of the Maryland data is that it's geocoded, meaning that I have the zip code of each, uh, the location of each SWAT deployment. So using that, I was able to pair the data with U.S. census data that uh, conveys a host of demographics, um, about the uh, zip code areas, uh, as well as I also did this at the county level. Um, so I, I can match the SWAT data with things like the average uh, level of education, average income, um, and in some cases, the uh, violent crime rate in the immediate area.
0: Wow, that's quite so, detailed.
2: Yeah, so um, what I'm able to show is that first, just looking at the uh, the two, two variables by themselves, so the percent African American in a place and the volume of SWAT deployments that occurs in, in, in that place during the period covered by the data, there's a really strong uh, positive correlation between those two things. The higher the percent uh, African American in a neighborhood um, among the residents, the more SWAT deployments occurred there during this time. And then I, as a sort of a, a check as to whether these, this correlation can be easily explained away by other factors, um, I add in these other de- I adjust the, the the model essentially for these other demographic characteristics and what I find is that even after adjusting for um, education and, and income and even crime in the area, um, there's still a, a strong positive correlation uh, between the uh, demo the um, Uh, racial makeup of the uh, location and the the number of SWAT deployments.
0: This is um, very impactful research, and it seems to me that we've been waiting for a long time for this kind of data-based empirical look at something that has gotten a lot of press since 2014 with those images that you and I both talked about a little earlier uh, do you have any sense that police departments have uh, have looked up and said, is this true?
2: Hmm. Uh, well, I haven't heard from any police uh, directly except for the, like, occasional uh, Twitter comment from an officer. Um, I'm, I'd be very interested in, in, in speaking with police organizations about this research. Um, my impression just from reading accounts, uh, interviews... Uh, where journalists are, you know, just talking to police chiefs about, you know, why do you have this equipment? Um, why do you have these SWAT teams? Is that they really do believe that there's um, a public safety benefit and an officer safety benefit to using uh, these tactics, um, and that they sort of see it as um, all upside. Um, that's not a uniform opinion. There have been some. Uh, police chiefs that have expressed concern that using these things in the wrong way can ha- can have a sort of a reputational cost for agencies. Right. So, but um, it's
0: like better safe than sorry. Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, that's right. And it's also been um, a trend that's been aided by a number of federal programs that have been supplying local yes. agencies with this gear for years. Ten thirty-three
0: and the no homeland security yeah. stuff. Yes, indeed. Yes.
2: So the Department of Defense has a massive surplus of military equipment. Um, ranging from mundane things like office supplies to uh, tanks and helicopters and grenade launchers. And it actually cost the federal government quite a deal of money to store and maintain this equipment. So uh, these programs sort of arose as a way to say, well, we don't want to spend all this money. We don't need all this stuff. Maybe it can be put to good good use at the local level. And I think it was sort of seen as a win-win for a long time. And, And billions of dollars in this equipment has gone out to thousands of agencies since the 1990s.
0: Let's take a quick break here. Our guest is Professor Jonathan Momolo of Princeton University, and we're talking about his work on the militarization of police departments. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We're back. It's Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Professor Jonathan Momolo of Princeton University, and we're discussing his empirical work on the militarization of police departments. Before the break, we were talking about the police reaction to SWAT team research Uh, let's take a little different tack right now one argument that you often hear from police and you had just verbalized it is that swat teams will deter violent crime were you able to get a beat on that did your research help understand whether that actually works that way
2: yes so this was sort of a, a key uh focus a key question um that motivated this paper was, are the benefits that police claim are delivered by these tactics actually real? Um, So what I did was I used um, a federal census of law enforcement agencies that was deployed uh, every four years, um, so 2000, 2004, and 2008. It's been deployed in other years, but in those particular years, the federal government asked agencies whether they were providing SWAT services in their jurisdiction. Um, So what I did was I stitched the data together over time, which was actually non-trivial because every time they did the survey, these 15,000 agencies or so had different identifying codes in the data, which makes it very difficult to match survey to survey. Oh,
0: that sounds labor Uh, intensive.
2: Yeah, so I eventually got that straight. Um, I was able to match around 9,000 agencies across the three waves And I built what's called a panel data set, which measures changes over time. Um, And so I was able to test, uh, using a statistical approach known as uh, difference in differences design, whether within agencies over time, when they adopt a SWAT team, do we see uh, associated changes in violent crime and officer safety. And I was able to get those uh, outcomes from the FBI, which maintains data at the agency level uh, on all those things.
0: So what kind of impact is there on violent crime?
2: So if anything, we see a small a um, evidence of a small increases in violent crime after the adoption of a SWAT team, but that result is not very robust to different modeling choices. Sometimes we can distinguish it from a, a zero effect. Sometimes it looks slightly positive. But what we can say is that there's certainly no evidence of any decreases in violent crime after the adoption of a SWAT team. And I find the same pattern of results looking at um, outcomes like the number of officers killed and the number of officers assaulted, again, within agencies over time.
0: And so the the takeaway there is that the long-claimed idea that this helps to suppress violent crime or that it makes officers safer – but what we can say very safely is that there's no evidence for those claims. We don't know if it, uh, we don't know any more than that. But certainly, if that's your case, there's no evidence for it.
2: That's right. Given the data that we have to date, um, the data don't support that claim. And I'm, you know, I'm a big proponent of us getting more data and looking at, at these questions more deeply. Um, but there's not really a lot of ambiguity in the results.
0: So we go on then and we look at something you talk about, police agency reputation. What does the use of SWAT, SWAT teams, militarization, did you find effects on the way people think about police agencies?
2: I did. And uh, the way I went about this was to to conduct um, a series of survey experiments. So um, I used... uh, Samples of uh, United States uh, adults um, that I gathered online. One was a convenience sample um, from the labor pool on Amazon's Mechanical Turk, and one was a higher quality, uh, more representative sample of the national population that I got through a survey vendor. And what I did was I showed survey respondents um, uh, like a mock news article um, that was based on real online news content. And it was basically just a, an article about a local police chief asking uh, the city council for a, a modest budget increase for his agency, something that happens in local every day, all the time.
0: every place. Yeah. Yes.
2: <laughs> so um, the article itself uh, was the same for everyone except for the picture which was randomly assigned uh, across survey respondents. So depending on um, who took the survey, they saw one of three or four different images of police um, associated with the article. So in the control condition, it's just an image of five officers sort of standing at attention um, in traditional blue uniforms with traditional side arms, brimmed hats, And then there were uh, three other images that conveyed various levels of militarization. So one image showed officers standing in what's called riot gear, which is basically uh, like plastic face masks and uh, body armor and batons. Another image showed officers standing in uh, body armor holding rifles. And then the final image, the highest uh, level of militarization, adds to uh, uh, the images of officers uh, an armored vehicle in the frame.
0: That is such an interesting way of designing an experiment, I'm thinking, because just as a, you know, kind of a layperson in this, I see images like that. And those images from Ferguson, they are so distinctly different. The images of regular everyday police officers and the things with, you know, with the military uniforms and the armored personnel carriers. I still remember those Ferguson images that I was saying before. And I almost can't shake them in a certain respect. So you've gone to something that is obviously different from the from the usual images.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I know those images are very striking. Some of them became iconic. Um, there were, I mean, there's, there's one image of a sniper on top of a vehicle sort of taking aim at the crowd, scanning the crowd. With the crowd um, with its think, hands up. That I think received, yes, unarmed civilians. Um, that I think received a lot of attention and uh, people were, I think, you know, it's, people were upset when they saw this, but what I really wanted to know was, um, is that emotion, is that reaction translating to uh, how people think about police in general relative to, you know, if they had seen police appearing uh, any differently, or as they normally uh, think about police officers, um, and sort of the, the blue-brimmed cap, classic police officer.
0: So what did you find? So,
2: So after reading the article, I ask a number of questions um, to people across all these conditions about uh, confidence in police and perceived crime and should we fund the police and and things like that. And I find consistent evidence across the two surveys that people who were assigned to see one of the militarized images have much lower opinions of police uh, than people who were assigned to see them in the traditional blue uniforms. Um, So for one, uh, respondents in the in the militarized conditions were more likely to say that the city they were reading about had high crime, um, which I find very interesting. Um, I don't necessarily know that it's the intention of, of law enforcement to um, convey uh, that crime is worse by using these tactics, but it's actually not an unreasonable thing to think. I think from the citizen point of view, you kind of see this equipment and you say, well, why would they need that unless things were really bad? Right, things
0: must be um, awful. Mm-hmm.
2: They're also less likely to speak to uh, support um, granting this budget increase the police chief is asking for, and they're also less likely to want to spend money on police in general in the United States. And, and I asked open-ended questions of, you know, why did you answer this way? And what you see is that the people who got the militarized images say, well, I don't think we should be spending more on police because they seem like they have plenty of money already given the equipment that they're showing. Um, which is interesting because that's actually not always the case, given the way that uh, some of this equipment is acquired for free. Right. They're getting so it at a,
0: bottom dollar prices.
2: Yeah. So I think that's a definite um, unintended signal that's being spent, uh, that's being sent by um, the the uh, use of this equipment in public. Um, I I, do, I don't think it's the intention of police administrators to, depress support for funding their agencies
0: oh my gosh um, no i mean if there's one thing that they would want to pay right. attention to in your work and there's more than one but my gosh if it is if it is causing people to disfavor their requests for public support in a form of tax dollars uh, they ought to rethink this
2: yeah exactly and then uh one final result i'll highlight is that um in the high militarization condition, we actually find uh, a drop in support for wanting police patrols in people's own neighborhoods. So not the city that they're reading about in this article, but actually the neighborhoods where they live. Um, So I think taken together, uh, it kind of shows that there is um, a pretty tangible drop in support for police, for funding police, for how people think about police when they see them in this way. And um, this is also, these are also effects that are pretty uniform across racial groups of respondents.
0: I wanted so, to ask about that. Talk yeah. about that.
2: So in one, in one of the survey samples, I, um, I collected uh, an, a large oversample of African-American respondents um, to, in, or, in order to get uh, more precise estimates of uh, African-American opinion in response to these questions. And that allowed me to compare the respon- responses among um, white participants from black participants and also to compare um, the effects that seeing these images had between the two groups. And what I find is that there really isn't any detectable difference in how uh, white respondents and black respondents um, responded to uh, these different image treatments. Um, and in other words, there's pretty uniformly negative responses Uh, to these images across racial
0: groups. That is fascinating because we know that while support for police and public safety efforts is still pretty robust in African-American communities, it is often noticeably lower than in white communities. And yet this particular testing shows no differences in reactions to the SWAT or militarized images.
2: Yeah, so just to be clear, Even in the survey, um, African American respondents do express lower confidence in police on average than white respondents, and that's what we see in other surveys as well. But what's indistinguishable is the effects of seeing these images. In other words, how much is their opinion moved by seeing one image versus another? And um, those changes in opinion uh, are very similar across
0: groups. So uh, the bottom line here is that the thing that I worry about and wonder about um, uh, so often is the difficulties and tensions and so forth between law enforcement and communities of color based on you know the, the history that isn't good and events in the present moment that seems to that seem to confirm some of the worst uh, fears and beliefs. In your opinion, based on your work, do you see the use of SWAT teams as affecting that particular dynamic?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think uh, the fact that these approaches, uh, sort of heavy-handed approaches that seem to inspire uh, fear and discomfort of law enforcement, um, the fact that they're concentrated in communities of color where trust in police, we know from a lot of research, is already anemic um, is it just does not bode well for the for police reform efforts and uh, efforts to sort of reconcile relationships between police uh, and and citizens of color, um, and that's important not just for for normative reasons but also I think it's something police should be concerned about as well, um, because we know from a lot of research in criminology that when when citizens don't trust police, the job of law enforcement is way more difficult. It
0: gets harder. Safety.
2: Public safety takes a hit. I mean, one of the most important assets to police investigations is cooperation from the community. So like if a violent crime happens, they go out and they interview people. And if people won't talk to them, those crimes don't get solved. And if those crimes don't get solved, there's good reason to believe that they they won't be deterred by law enforcement. That's right. The predators
0: Um, stay out there.
2: Exactly. So I just think that um, given that these tactics don't seem to deliver the benefits that police have long thought that they do in terms of crime reduction and officer safety, and given that they pretty uniformly lower people's opinions toward police, uh, it just seems like it's in the interest, based on this analysis of both police and citizens, to ratchet back the use of these militarized tactics. Um, I think police can make a credible case especially in big cities, um, that they need things like SWAT teams in the event of violent emergencies, active shooters, terrorist attacks. Um, They need that capability. Um, But it's hard to make the case that they need to be deploying them thousands of times a year uh, for the service of search warrants when the safety benefits aren't even detectable in the data.
0: That's Jonathan Mamolo. He is assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University, and he's the author of Militarization Fails to Enhance Police Safety or Reduce Crime but May Harm Police Reputation, published in 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Thank you. Let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Penn Live website and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Michael J. Casale of Lycoming County, Pennsylvania. It used to be that if your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you and you couldn't get over it and you wanted to know who she or he was seeing instead, you'd have to follow your ex around or perhaps hire a private detective. Very creepy and maybe even worse if we're talking about stalking. Well, unfortunately, when the former girlfriend in this scenario dumped lawyer Casale in September of 2015, Casale went the high-tech route. Instead of following her, he made his way into her garage and put a GPS unit and a listening device in her car a couple of months later. No word on what he may have learned about his former girlfriend for his troubles. In March of 2016, his former girlfriend discovered the devices and brought this to the attention of the authorities. This led to criminal charges against lawyer Casale, and in January of 2018, he pled guilty to charges of criminal trespass and interception of communications. A more serious burglary charge was dropped as part of his plea. He'll be on probation. He has to perform 100 hours of community service and will pay $10,000, which will go to a, quote, women's program at the YWCA because, according to the judge, what Lawyer Casale did amounted to a type of domestic violence. The guilty plea resulted in an immediate temporary suspension of Lawyer Casale's license to practice in January of 2018. Fast forward to September of 2018, the Pennsylvania Bar authorities have suspended Lawyer Casale for five years, retroactive to the date of his guilty plea in January, with the last four years suspended, as long as he fulfills the conditions of his probation and, of course, otherwise behaves himself. No more high-tech surveillance, for sure. The authorities were influenced by the fact that Casali admitted his conduct, cooperated fully, and expressed great remorse and embarrassment. So he'll be able to practice again in January of 2019. Given the high-tech spyware Lawyer Casale used, there's this irony. Before the equipment was discovered, Lawyer Casale says he made several efforts to retrieve the devices. If he had succeeded, he might never have been discovered. But his effort to abort his spying mission was thwarted by another important technology. The doors on his ex's car were locked. And there he was without a coat hanger or a Slim Jim to get him into the car. Defeated by low tech. That is lawyers behaving badly and that does it. For this episode of Criminal Injustice, subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Leave us a review. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you just call in and ask Dave about it? Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, the number is 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Wallerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments. Or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389 or online at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.